don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. Uh, if you've been enjoying the We Croak podcast, I do ask that you subscribe, give us a five-star review, tell a friend. Uh, we definitely grow by people hearing about us and uh, telling other people, so please do that. And if you really love the We Croak podcast, you can go to our Patreon specifically for the podcast, and um, any support really helps us. You can also reach out, tell us what you liked. We love hearing from listeners. Uh, also, if you go to uh, the We Croak app on iOS, you can subscribe to Leap. That's also helpful, and you get a lot of cool things in there, like more quotes, a daily review, and lots of uh, great stuff. Uh, we have an amazing episode for you today with Massimo Pilucci. Uh Massimo is the first guest uh, we ever had on the WeCrook podcast. So if you like this conversation, you can scroll all the way back 30-something episodes to the first one and hear him talk about his personal journey of uh, choosing uh, to commit to a stoic lifestyle as an adult. Uh, but this conversation is a little bit broader. It's about his new book, How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. And in it, uh, he edits a number of essays from guests who have embraced many other different um, uh, practical philosophies, ways of life from uh, Aristotelianism to Taoism to uh, existentialism, um, progressive Islam. Um, there, there's a whole smorgasbord of options of great ways to live and personal philosophies to live by. And we talk about a bunch of them in this podcast, but really it's about being an adult and choosing our own values and how we want to live uh, because time is short and life is precious. Uh, and so uh, here we have Massimo again. I hope you enjoy. Massimo, thank you so much for joining us once again on the We Croak podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. You were one of the first people that we had on. And from that date where you came on that podcast, I've actually had a couple people reach out to say that that podcast episode was their introduction to Stoicism. And it has since become their main life philosophy, which uh, was very humbling and very cool. So just thought I'd let you know that you were very persuasive last time. That's nice to hear. Thank you. Um, but we're actually here to talk about sort of a different exercise today, kind of inspired by this new book that you edited called How to Live a Good Life. And from what I gathered from the introduction, the book has a really... Uh, kind of amazing and wild premise, which is based on your experience of perhaps looking at a lot of different life philosophies and then proactively choosing Stoicism as a place to go in deeply and learn about and live by. Um, so the book is constructed as essays from sort of different philosophies or religions to live by, from Buddhism to Taoism to um, Epicureanism, to Stoicism, to Hinduism, Christianity, all these different um, perspectives. And you invite people who live by these to write an essay. And I guess this is kind of a starting place to start your own sort of review of what life philosophy might fit you best. 
That's right. So we take uh, in the book, I'm saying we because the book is co-edited with two friends and colleagues of mine, um, Dan Kaufman and Sky Cleary. We take a broad definition of a philosophy of life. We think that a philosophy of life, broadly speaking, has three components. It has a metaphysics. That's an account of how the world works. It has a ethics. That's an account of how we should live in the world, should behave in the world. And then it has some practices. If you define a philosophy of life that way, then basically religions become philosophies of life, which I think is fair enough. I think that one of the major, if not the major, uh, you know, scope or, or purpose of a religion is, in fact, to provide people with uh, a framework uh, by which to live their lives. So if you think about, for instance, I grew up a Catholic uh, in, uh, in Italy, and, uh, you know, if you're a Catholic, there is a metaphysics there. It has to do with the notion of a creator God that has certain characteristics that, uh, you know, put together the universe that loves us and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there is, of course, an ethics, and that is the Ten Commandments, the teachings of Jesus, and so on and so forth. And then there are practices. You pray, you go to church, you listen to sermons, you read scriptures and, and reflect on them, that sort of stuff. And that is really no different from, let's say, my preferred philosophy of life, Stoicism, where there is a metaphysics, uh, the Stoics are... Uh, uh, you know, pantheist, the, the, the early stocks are pantheist, the modern ones are more varied in their metaphysical beliefs, but they are also, uh, uh, they believe that everything is made of uh, matter and, and energy, they believe in universal cause and effect. And then they have an ethics, uh, you're supposed to live life in accordance with nature, as they say, so in other words, by trying to use your, your mind uh, to improve social life for everyone. The Stoicism is a cosmopolitan philosophy. And then there are practices. There are different kinds of meditations. There are, you read texts, you reflect on texts, and so on and so forth. So if you take that broad definition of philosophy and religion, uh, that's why you can, we came up with a certainly non-exhaustive list of about 15, I think, uh, philosophies and religions that we treat in the book. Yeah, I want to I wanna ask you about that list in a little bit, of how you came up with your short list for this book, but I'd also love to hear an account of uh, what was it like for you to be kind of a seeker of a new philosophy, life philosophy? How much research did you do? How did you come up with your sort of short list of um, philosophies to look into? Uh, how did how did you approach that when you sort of were in the market, as it were, for a new life philosophy? <laughs> Yeah, so this happened a number of years ago when I was going through a little bit of a midlife crisis, and I realized that, so first of all, as I said, I grew up Catholic, but I did leave the church when I was a teenager. So that was not an option uh, to go back to that sort of thing, because the reasons I left were still perfectly valid in my mind. After leaving the church, I always considered myself a secular humanist. But when it came to dealing with uh, actual life events, uh, such as, let's say, my father dying or something like that, uh, I found that secular humanism, although it has a lot of interesting sort of ideas about how we should treat people and universal human rights and all that sort of stuff, it wasn't really particularly helpful, at least not to me, in terms of how to frame things for a day-to-day -day life. So I embarked in a kind of a more, more or less systematic search uh, I studied actually with Buddhism, and the reason for that is because several of my friends told me, you know, you really should look into this uh, Buddhism thing, and I have a couple of colleagues who also study Buddhism seriously and practice it, so, so that was one uh, thing that I looked at immediately. It didn't click with me. I mean, I, I realized that there are lots of good things about Buddhism, especially in the ethics. Metaphysics, I found it to be a little alien 
for my taste. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't click. Uh, very quickly, I realized that the answer for me, at least again, was going to come from a general area of ethical philosophy called virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is often, uh, you know, people think about the Western tradition, Aristotle, Epicurus, all the Hellenistic philosophies where uh, are fall into that category. But it's actually found in the Eastern uh, tradition as well. And Confucianism is a type of uh, virtue ethics. And the, the characteristic that differentiates virtue ethics from other approaches is that it's not based on any kind of, sort of list of commandments or, uh, or anything like that. It is based on the notion that uh, the most important thing in, in, in life is to improve your character, to become a better person. So it, it starts from the bottom up, let's say, not from the top down. There's no source of universal ethics. It's a question of uh, asking yourself, you know, what, what counts as a good person and how can I get there from where I am? So that seemed to me the right way to go about it. And so I started looking systematically into examples of virtue ethics. And uh, the first one is Aristotle because... Uh, you kind of have to start with Aristotle. Uh, it's kind of the, it's the quintessential, you know, the, the, the paradigm of virtue ethics, at least in the Western tradition. Then I looked at Epicureanism and so on. But but even then, nothing really clicked. Uh, these were ideas that were interesting. I, had, I could appreciate why people would be interested in them and the value that they have. But it's like uh, it's not, I wasn't reading, you know, Epicurus or Aristotle or Confucius and say, oh, yeah, that's that's the way I want to live my life. And then what happened was that uh, when I was in the midst of this process, uh, I saw a tweet that said, uh, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I thought, the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Uh, because, of course, I was under the uh, common misconception that the Stoics are like a Mr. Spock from Star Trek, right? So suppressing emotions, stiff upper lip and that sort of stuff. But then I, I remember, wait a minute, the Stoics, that's Marcus Aurelius. I, I read the meditations in college. I liked it. That's uh, also Seneca. I translated Seneca from Latin uh, in, when I was in high school. So it's like, but I never actually put the two, and two, the, the two together. And so I said, well, let me, let me look into this. And as soon as I started reading the Stoic texts, particularly the early second century Stoic ep philosopher Epictetus, uh, I heard the click in my mind. I said, ah, wait. This not only makes a hell of a lot of sense, but it actually is very practical. Uh, it, it struck a chord with me, and that's how I, I came to practice it. But the thing about the other authors of the book is that each one had similar <laughs> experiences, except that they ended up you know, adopting a different religion uh, or re-embracing, because some, you know, often you, you kind of grow up in a religion, and so you don't really adopt it, but um, uh, but you you renew your uh, you know your practice and so on and so forth. So pretty much everybody had a similar experience at some point or another in their lives. And so all of these people have actually made a conscious choice of uh, practicing their philosophy or religion. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed reading the book just because every single voice explaining why they committed to this sort of path, I guess, is kind of... Uh, a really good speaker about what they like about their life philosophy. So it almost feels like a, a menu of different ways of inhabiting the world. That's right. In fact, that was the idea uh, to provide a menu is a, a little bit of a consumerist way of putting it, <laughs> I suppose. But that was the idea that, that we wanted people who are already are in um, either by default or by choice practicing one of these 
philosophies to take a look at their own and maybe compare with others uh, and realize that actually there is quite a lot of similarities between uh, these different approaches that, in my mind, would foster, you know, temp uh, would foster sort of uh, uh, an attitude of um, pos and positive attitude toward different traditions and tolerance toward different traditions. Or if you are happen to be in the middle of a midlife crisis and you don't know where to go, then then the book is definitely a, uh, offer you a number of choices that you might start investigating on your own and decide if which one, if any, work for you. In your experience of talking to people who've chosen these different life philosophies, obviously there's two ways of approaching this. One is read widely and take what you like from each tradition. Uh, another is kind of read widely, then pick one, commit to it, and do that one well. And I was wondering if you had any sense of if you have recommendations for people about which approach uh, might work best. Well, I think that does depend on the individual, unfortunately. I don't, I don't think, or fortunately, actually, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there is a, a universal recipe. As I said, for me, it worked uh, better to look systematic, more or less systematically. I didn't look at all 15 when I was looking, searching for my on my own, but I zeroed in on the ones that appeared to be most um, promising. And but that's because I tend to, you know, I have an analytic mind. I tend to uh, want things, you know, written down and take notes and things like that. Uh, that might not work for 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 everyone, and um, you know other people might go about it differently. One one way to go about it is to actually approach uh, other people or organizations and basically try them out, right? So if if, if you, especially if you live in a large city, you probably have certainly a church or a synagogue or a, uh, or or any other major uh, you know building that is associated with a religion, but you might also have uh, secular humanist organizations or uh, a local store if you're interested in stories or something like that. Uh, so it might be better for some people to just, you know, walk into a place and start talking to others and see how they, how they feel. Uh, other people might just have a, uh, you know, sort of a, some kind of basic intuition that certain things are going to, might work for them and, uh, and others are completely out of the question. So it, it depends. I know I really don't think that is a universal way of going about it. Do you have any favorite essays from the book or, you know, if you hadn't, chosen stoicism that might have been really appealing to you? Oh, that's a good question. Certainly the one by Owen Flanagan on Buddhism is, is one of that, that I uh, found the most intriguing. And I'll tell you the reason in a minute. But I'll also, I was interested in the uh, essay on existentialism. Um, and I was curious about how a modern Epicurean might go uh, about uh, articulating their philosophy. So those, I guess, are the three that were more interesting to me. But that's also because... In terms of my background, you know, I know enough about the major religions, for instance, that I didn't really need to uh, get back to that um, in, in depth. The, the essay about Buddhism was interesting to me because of the many parallels that there are between Buddhism and uh, and Stoicism, and one in particular comes out right at the beginning of the of the essay. Owen was uh, early on in his in his interest in Buddhism. He actually uh, happened to to um, interview the Dalai Lama. And uh, he was struck by these thoughts that the Buddhists have that you should never get angry. You should walk toward, toward never, never actually getting angry, which is the same advice that the Stoics would give you. And the reason for that is because uh, anger is irrational and it gets in the way actually of doing things uh, properly. It kind of interferes with your ability to reason and to, and to do things. But he was struck by this thing and he said, you know, this is pretty much, you know, how, how can the, these people believe that one should never be angry and so he, he 
put the obvious question to the Dalai Lama. He said, look, uh, imagine that uh, I have the proverbial time machine at my disposal. Should I go back and kill Hitler uh, so that he doesn't do what we know he, he did? And shouldn't I do that because I'm angry at the thought of what he did? And the Dalai Lama's response was really interesting and very surprising for, uh, for Owen. He, the Dalai Lama said, uh, yes, you I sh absolutely should go back and kill Hitler. And in fact, you should do it with some fanfare, uh, you know, organizing things uh, so that it's pretty clear and obvious to a lot of people that that's what you're doing because you are excising a really bad karmic point in the history of the universe. So you should definitely do it. But no, you should definitely also not do it while being angry because Hitler didn't ask to be there. Uh, he's just uh, a, a very bad note in the karmic uh, web, and uh, it needs to be excited if, if, if possible. Um, but that's about it. It's like you, you need to think about it as a, as a doctor who uh, takes out a tumor. There is, you, you don't get upset about it. You don't get angry at the tumor. The tumor is just doing what tumors do. And that's exactly the stoic take on it. Uh, you know, people do things uh, because they don't know better, because they are not wise, because they haven't figured out that we are that the best thing to do on, on on earth for human being is actually to be cooperative and kind to other to other people so they're just uh, doing what they do for whatever uh, reasons that uh, go back to their own personal history uh, we should certainly stop them if uh, those things are hurting other people but that's about it we should stop them with the same kind of attitude that a doctor has toward a disease and, and i thought that was like wow especially coming from the dalai lama this was a, an interesting way of putting things yeah, I, I was struck by that section on anger and on that essay and sort of the complex way Western Buddhists sort of confront those ancient teachings um, and sort of the ways it sort of adapts to sort of our modern um, uh, culture. It was It was a really good essay, which actually brings me to another point of um, it felt like as I was looking at the philosophies that you selected, there was a really big, obvious one that felt like, you know, the number one American way of life and religion left out, namely capitalism. Um, and I'm wondering, like, could you not get <laughs> someone you respected to to, uh, to voice for that uh, life philosophy? It's, it's very, very popular, of course. It, it it is a very popular one. Uh, no, we actually didn't even think about capitalism as a religion, although I think that it would probably qualify <laughs> is, uh, from the point of view of the, the definition that I gave uh, earlier. Uh, what we did uh, consider very briefly is the next best thing, which is um, uh, objectivism, you know, Ayn Rand's philosophy. And, and then I just, we, we both immediately, we all three of us immediately agreed that now there is enough crap about Ayn Rand out there already. We don't need to propagate in, insane ideas. So we, we, we actually exercised a little bit of editorial judgment there. And we said, now, if people want to know about that, there's plenty of stuff out there and we don't need yeah. to. Um, yeah, I, I, I bring it up because in the, <laughs> the essay on Buddhism by uh, Owen Flanagan, I think uh, is the name, uh, he, he brought up the yes. ways that you know we've got such a strong sort of capitalist way of life that sometimes these like you know meditations that um you know are about relaxing or calming down can be just become just like additions to you know what really is a capitalist way of life of like calming down so that you can work a 70 hour week at some awful job or something uh that he called right kind of uh 
bullshit. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Now that's, uh, that's right. It can, that can definitely happen. In fact, uh, uh, both Buddhism and Stoicism are often accused of being sort of quietist philosophies that, uh, you know, play into the uh, uber capitalism uh, uh, of contemporary society. But I do think that that's a very clear misreading of those philosophies because both Buddhists and Stoics are, Stoics are very clear that uh, you should be kind to other people, you should be helpful to other people, that you should be spending most of your time actually on self ethical self-improvement, not self-improvement in the sense of I want to become a billionaire. So it's, it's pretty clear to me that act, they actually very far, uh, and not only that, but both of them have ethical injunctions uh, that uh, tell their practitioners that if they do see an injustice, they should try to, to intervene for as much, as much as it is possible or within their power. So they're definitely not quietist philosophies. But because there is the emphasis, you know, a lot of people in the Western world put the emphasis not on the philosophies themselves, but on the techniques, right? So, you know, if you're uh, often in the, in the Western tradition, you tend to sort of meditate, study meditation practices. That doesn't make you a Buddhist, however. That just makes you somebody who meditates. And in fact, um, Owen man mentions in the chapter in the book that a lot of Buddhists don't meditate. <laughs> uh, in the same way, you know, if you engage in certain kinds of um, uh, meditation and journaling exercises, that doesn't make you a stoic. That just makes you somebody who engages in visualization exercises and journaling. Uh, in order to be a stoic or a Buddhist, you have to actually embrace the, the philosophy and the philosophy, you know, with the way you look at life and the way you behave. And those are more important than the practice. Practice is supposed to be auxiliary and supposed to be helpful uh, for actually getting the philosophy into to work for you, but, uh, but they're actually only secondary. And a lot of people, especially in the Western world today, you know, we, we focus on, uh, I want the result kind of stuff, uh, but that kind of misses the point, you know, pretty spectacular fashion. Yeah, but if you read a book about Stoicism and say, yeah, I'm a Stoic now, but you don't, you know, work on your anger, you don't do a daily review, nor do you do any of the exercises or meditations. Um, can you, are you really a Stoic if you're not doing any of the practices that Stoics recommend to live that philosophy? So, I, yeah, that's a good question. So I think there's a difference between practicing and, and exercising, right? So, uh, what I was, what I, what I meant when I say, when I said um, that it's not about the practice, I meant it's not about the exercises necessarily. So whether you journal or not, you can still be a stoic, so long as you act as a stoic, right? So long as uh, you you practice in in the sense of you always ask yourself whether your actions are in agreement with the four cardinal virtues and so on and so forth. That is the practice of of a stoic. Whether you then also journal or engage in visualization exercises, uh, that's up to you. I mean, if it helps your put, to, put the, to put the philosophy into practice, absolutely. But it's not, I don't think it is necessary. Just like, as, as I said, Owen pointed out, uh, lots of people live a Buddhist life, meaning that they try honestly, earnestly uh, to, you know, uh, internalize the Four Noble Truths and, uh, and follow the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment, but they may or may not meditate. Meditation is supposed to be an aid to get get it easy, you know, ma makes things easier for you. But it's really not part of the philosophy. It's just a it's just a technique.
Yeah, and a lot of the meditations that have become popular are actually very specifically designed for people in a monastic lifestyle, which I think is yes, really interesting. Right, <laughs> right exactly. And most people are not <laughs> do not engage that lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. So there's been quite a bit of like figuring out how to make these practices work for someone who have to go back into the regular world and like earn a living or something like that, which are demands that your average um, monk doesn't have in the same way. But all these traditions evolve and change. Uh, well, tell me about your kind of stoic lifestyle. What are your sort of core practices that you do keep up with? Which ones do you kind of uh, let go of uh, because maybe you don't need them as much? What, what does it mean to you to sort of embrace a life philosophy and stay true to it? Well, uh, in the first place, it means to behave, try at least to behave like a, like a Stoic would. And um, the, the, the most fundamental rule in Stoicism is to live according to nature, as the ancient Stoics put it, uh, which I hasten to say doesn't mean that we should strip naked and, and, and run into the woods and hug trees, although, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. What it means is to take seriously human nature for the Stoics, human nature is the nature of an animal capable of reason. Our major evolutionary uh, weapon, so to speak, is in fact our ability to reason through problems. We don't have you know, big muscles, we don't run fast, we don't have fangs, we don't have any of that stuff, but we, do, we are capable of reason. And we are extremely, pro, extremely social animals. We, we depend on other people uh, in order to thrive uh, in our life. So fundamentally to live like a stoic means to use your mind use your reason in order to solve problems that have to do with interacting with others uh, and you know that can be at the local level or at a broader level depending on on uh, on the specifics but it starts at at home right it starts with uh, treating your your wife or husband or partner your children your parents your friends your co-workers and so on and so forth in uh in a uh, with, with justice, justice is one of the four cardinal virtues in Stoicism, and it is understood to be uh, to essentially consist in treating other people with fairness and dignity, the way in which you would want to be treated. So just start there. That's a big chunk of Stoic practice. I mean, if you manage to do that all the time, that's pretty impressive already. <laughs> the other major part of uh, Stoic practice for me is to keep in check the so-called passions. The word passion, it's a, kind of unfortunate uh, because the modern English meaning of it it's like, tends to be positive, right? I have a passion for music or I have a passion for this or that or the other. But for the Stoic, the, the Stoic um, uh, word actually has uh, is a, the root, uh, it's the same as the root path of uh, the word, English word pathology. Uh, and that means unhealthy emotions, the kind of emotions that get in the way of you living according to nature. The big one is anger. So uh, I've been working on my, you know, anger issues. Like, well, I think like many people I do have, I'm prone to get irritated or angry or something like that. And working on that means following certain particular, very basic techniques that were laid out almost 2000 years ago by Seneca, uh, but they're all in, in a book called On Anger. But that uh, I checked actually recently, they're essentially the same kind of advice, give or take, that the American Psychological Association gives you if you go to their website and look up anger management. So very basic uh, techniques. So remind yourself, whenever you feel what Seneca called the first movements of anger, so that kind of physiological 
uh, you know, automatic reaction because you can't, you can't, there's nothing you can do about it to avoid it. But when you're beginning to feel like you're getting angry because of whatever reason, you know, you feel that like, an injustice has been done to you or to somebody else. When you feel that, then the first rule is disengage. Go out for a walk, uh, count until uh, 20, uh, go to the bathroom and take a break, Wh whatever it is, whatever help helps to disengage from the situation. Give your time, yourself time to calm down, to get back to a sort of normal state of, of mind, and then ask yourself, wait a minute, why was I getting angry here? Is there actually an actual problem that needs to be solved or needs to be addressed? Uh, or was I actually getting angry for no particular reason or for the wrong, wrong reason? So those are two of my major uh, practices, you know, trying to be kind on the one hand uh, to anybody, uh, strangers or not, uh, and trying not to get angry. And if I, you know, if I were ever to succeed completely at both of those, I would be considering myself, a, you know, <laughs> a success uh, from the point of view of, uh, of stoic practice. Yeah, I think the anger issue is really interesting for today, kind of meeting the challenges of our times, because, of course, we still have yeah. the anger management issues of you're married, you're going to get angry sometimes, you have interpersonal relationships. But then also there's this issue where I think anger is the number one tool at which um, bad actors will try to manipulate you. Um, and yes. At this point with online culture, there's maybe countless trolls trying to make you angry so that you will do an action that they want, whether it's engage with their advertising or spend more time on Facebook, literally soulless and mindless algorithms are leveraging anger that you have to manipulate That's you. Exactly and right. so if you, if you don't have some tools for working with anger, uh, you're going to lose a lot of your life to this bullshit. <laughs> yes, you are. Now, the obvious objection there is, but shouldn't aren't there uh, things about which I, it, it's actually not only natural, but in fact justified to get angry, right? You know, racial injustice being the obvious example uh, that has been in the news for the last year or so. And there I am with the uh, Dalai Lama. The answer is no. No, there aren't. Now, there are plenty of issues where you should be you should be cultivating what the Stoics call a, a healthy emotion, that is a sense of, let's say, let's call it for lack of a better term, a sense of justice. That is, you see something that is unjust, you ought to do something about it, and you ought to do something about it because you care. But, but your emotional response is a positive one, it's not a negative one. It's one that the Stoics would say is in agreement with reason, uh, and not one that is against reason or that tries to over, overwrite reason. And that I found is one of the uh, things that, as, as I said, both Stoicism and Buddhism have in, in common, and they get a lot of people upset. Every time that I tweet something, a link to an essay that I wrote about anger or that somebody else wrote about anger, I get a lot of angry responses. It's like people want to be angry. Well, there are legitimately countless like, reasons yeah. <laughs> to be extremely angry at people and the world. There's so much injustice. And unfortunately, yes. it's the nature of anger that it makes us easily manipulated and overreact or focus on the wrong things so right you know I well as, as i said i would just reframe that and say there are countless reasons to uh, cultivate your sense of justice in the world but there is no good reason to get angry <laughs> precisely because of that manipulation uh, aspect that, that you're talking about and also because uh, when you act on the basis of your anger uh, you are not thinking straight and therefore you might even if you're well-intentioned you might actually end up you know doing more damage than not
Yeah, I guess my way through it is I'm going to get angry. It just happens. I use the tools to pull out of it a little bit, like just get a little bit of perspective, the view from above, if you will, do some of my death meditations, which I lean on so much, and then figure out what to do about it, if there's an appropriate justice action or something like that. And it's very helpful to have tools to deal with some of the most dangerous things of modern life. Absolutely. And as you say, it's also very helpful to listen to your emotions, unhealthy or healthy that they may be, uh, you know, because even though you should not act on the basis of anger, the Stoics don't counsel to to suppress anger for one thing because it's important, impossible. You just don't suppress. You know, you can't. It's not like you can turn it off uh, at a push of a button. But also because it may be telling you something. Uh, the the classic uh, story that uh, several ancient Stoic authors uh, bring about in this context is that of Medea. Medea was this barbarian princess who helped Jason of the Argonauts steal the, the, the golden fleece. And, uh, and then they had children and he, he, uh, together and they, uh, and Jason sort of said, yeah, well, when we get back to Greece, I'm, I'm going to marry you. Then it, what happens? He gets get to Greece. He, he says, no, I'm sorry, you're a barbarian. I can't do that. And he, he marries uh, a uh, Greek princess. And Medea gets angry, understandably, right? The problem is she acts on, an, on, on that anger and she ends up killing the princess, the princess father, and more importantly, her own two children. Right. So what a stoic would say is like Medea was right to listen to the anger because the anger was telling her that there was an injustice being done there. She had been betrayed by her own companion and by the father of her children. But she should have first calmed down, get a grip of, on the situation, and then decide what to do and how to proceed. Instead, she acted on the basis of anger and the result was a tragedy. Although it's a beautiful tragedy uh, that Euripides uh, tells us about and then Seneca uh, rewrote in Latin. Yeah, and it doesn't take that much looking at modern life between mass shootings and all sorts of terrible things that happen to see sort of modern Medea stories of just how destructive anger can get left unchecked. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's like... Since there is an insistence um, uh, in Stoicism, but also in other philosophies, on reason as opposed to just following your emotions, uh, you know, I always get sort of this, this kind of criticism. Oh, you, it's all about reason. Life is not just about reason. It's like, yeah, uh, certainly life is not, not just about reason, but are you telling me that we live in too reasonable a world? Is that the, <laughs> the underlying message? Do you think that insistent on reason is like, oh, come on, we everybody reasons. <laughs> Let, let's do something else. It's like, I think we have a long way before reason becomes you know, overused uh, in, in human societies. All right, Ian. It's the end of the day. What are you going to check in with? You know, I love to check in with my daily review tool on the WeCroak app with uh, making sure that I reached out to, to old colleagues and friends. You know, it's more important than ever to keep those connections strong, particularly when it's um, not reasonable to go and, and see people. And I probably wasn't very good at doing that before. But now with the WeCroak daily review, every night at 8 o'clock, I'll get a little ping. And I know, I know that reminder is coming. And so throughout the day, I am making sure that I'm holding myself accountable for um, reaching out to, to old colleagues and friends and all the other things that are in my uh, daily review um, list. So I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I love it. When does your uh, 
daily review reminder arrive on your phone, Hansa? Yeah, about 9 p.m. I guess I'm a little bit more of a night owl. But there's a, there's a, there's a, a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, and he, he said a quote along the lines of, you know, you know, if you lose your car keys or your wallet, you're sure to know it. But if you lose yourself, the problem is you don't know it. And that's the truth is we get off track. We get distracted. We, you know, we, we don't always do the things we meant to do when we wake up in the morning or stay close to whatever we care about most. That's family, um, different aspirations or service work. And so a daily review is a really beautiful way for those things, that list of things that whatever you decided you care about most to be a regular part. Like you look at that list every day and say, yes, I lived up to this. No, I didn't. And what we find is when we're looking at it daily, we lose ourselves less. And that's why we built this second tool to be part of the WeCroak app. We've always kept it really, really simple and only wanted to build things that um, would have so much impact in such a short time because our time is really precious. And if you have an iPhone, I really hope uh, you sign up and give it a try. Yeah, we're always and always will be you know, so deliberate about everything that we add or change in the WeCroak app. And we don't get to update it um, with brand new features, you know, maybe often as, as some other folks, but we really like our you know, slow, deliberate approach and hope you appreciate it as well. And uh, another thing you ought to be appreciating, uh, as I'm sure you are, is this podcast episode. So we won't take up any more of our time talking about uh, We Croak Daily Review. And let's get back to the episode. Okay, I want to talk about a couple more stoic things. Um, Tell me about the There Goes My Cup meditation, because you have a whole section on it in your essay, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, there goes my cup. Is one a number of Stoic mantra, if you if you will. Uh, the Stoics uh, suggest as a as a useful technique to have a few ready at hand f- phrases to remind yourself uh, under this, uh, different circumstances uh, what a good Stoic approach would be. The uh, there goes my cup one has to to deal, to do with the fact that everything is impermanent, and so eventually everything is going to change. And uh, you should get used mentally, you know, to to uh, to the fact that uh, that is the way the world works, and not get too upset about it. So uh, it comes from a quote from Epictetus where he says, you know, your favorite mug uh, at some point will break, and when it does, you should remind, you should tell yourself, well, I knew it was going to break because it, it was a mug. It's in the nature of mugs eventually to break, and that doesn't mean you don't care. It doesn't mean that you're you know, that wasn't your favorite. It just means that when it happens, you accept it for what it is. Now, the next bit there is quite a bit more difficult and controversial because Epictetus also says, now work your way up to more and more difficult things. And, you know, when you kiss your, your child or your uh, wife goodnight, rem- remember that they're mortals and then they might die. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I was on board there with the cup stuff. But... <laughs> What do you mean? I should get used to the notion that I might lose my child or my or, or my partner. But the reality is that we might. The, the reality is that we're all mortals. You know, it's either we're going to go first or they're going to go first. There's really no other choice. And at the time of uh, Epictetus, in particular, this was a day-to-day occur- occurrence in the Roman Empire. I mean, just think about the following uh, little factoid: Marcus Aurelius who was a uh, you know, Roman emperor who lived in, near the second, in, near the, in the second half of the, of the uh, second century, he had 13 or 14 children. Of those, only five survived to adulthood. This was the emperor, the most powerful man 
in the Mediterranean world. His personal physician was Galen, one of the most famous physicians of all times. And yet, you know, about a third of his children survived. You can imagine what it would be li like for, you know, regular, regular folks. So this was an, a day-to-day -day occurrence that the ancient Stoics actually had to uh, deal with. But in fact, it happens to us as well. I mean, I, had, I lost both of my parents. And, uh, you know, a few years uh, from, from each other, both of them cancer, both of them big smokers and all that sort of stuff. And when uh, I lost my father, I really did not handle it well. Um, I was in denial. I, I mean, I knew exactly what was happening at a sort of rational level. I'm a biologist, so I know exactly what, what a diagnosis of that particular kind of cancer meant. But like, I was in denial. I was uh, here in the United States. He was in Rome. And I was telling myself, yeah, but... Yeah, this is not going to happen anytime soon. You know, I can, I can go and visit later. Then, of course, it did happen, and it happened when I was on my way to the airport uh, to go visit him. So, you know, there was regret, there was anger, and myself, that sort of stuff. This was before I started practicing stoicism. Completely different thing when my mother died, uh, which was once I had started practice stoicism. I just paid attention. I did exactly what Epictetus says, pay attention. There is a word, uh, a Greek word that, that Epictetus uses all the time. It's, uh, it's prosoke. And prosoke just literally means pay attention. Uh, pay attention to, to things. So I paid attention to what was happening. I went immediately to visit and I went back as much as possible. I uh, tried to talk to my mother about uh, all sorts of things that we might not have talked about otherwise. Um, I tried to be helpful, et cetera, et cetera. And when she did die, I was much more at peace as a result. So this isn't a question of, uh, oh, well, <laughs> they're dead, too bad. Let me go have, you know, play golf uh, this afternoon. Uh, it's a question of acceptance and serenity, right? It's, it's, if there is something that you cannot avoid, there is nothing you can do about it, uh, then you need to accept it and, in fact, to make the best of what's happening uh, up until the very last minute. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not mentally prepared, you're not, and then you're going to regret it. Uh, yeah, I've, I've done this practice, by the way, of uh, every time you kiss a loved one, and I expanded it to every time I hug a friend, um, you know, remind yourself that you love a mortal. Like, just think this could be our last hug. Um, and uh, I loved it, actually. I kept with it and still do it quite often. Just helps you really appreciate how precious any time with someone that you care about is treat them better, not get hung up on small stuff. And, um, you know, let's, it's kind of permission to like feel the affection that you have for someone now, uh, rather than later. Exactly. There is a, there's a positive counterpart to this, which comes clear in one of the bits by Epictetus. I mean, one of the reasons I like, I like Epictetus is because it's got an interesting sense of humor bordering on sarcasm uh you know he, he kind of berates sometimes his own students and say what what do you, what the hell are you talking about what, what are you thinking and at some point there's one of these, these beautiful passages in the discourses where he says if you uh, want your you know dead loved one to be alive when when it's, she's, she's gone or if you want your friend to be here when in fact he's abroad you want you wish for figs in winter and it's foolish to fig to to wish for figs in winter because, of course, during the winter there are no figs. However, the converse of that is when it's summer, you should be paying attention and enjoy the figs as much as possible, precisely because you know that the winter is coming and they're going to be gone. And instead, as you were saying, we have a tendency to take a lot of things for granted, especially familiar things and people, 
and to think that they're, even though at a rational level, we know that they're not going to be there forever, just like we are not going to be there forever. But and on a day-to-day -day basis, we kind of take that for granted. Say, oh, of course, she's going to be here tomorrow and the next month and you know the next year. But there is no of course about it. Uh, and so the, the notion is, yes, focus on not only be prepared to, uh, with a serene acceptance when, when people or things are gone, but more importantly, enjoy them when they are here, because uh, otherwise you're wasting your time. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a beautiful one. And it sounds like a lot, but I like that progression of mm -hmm. there goes my cup to, you know, there goes everyone <laughs> I care about sort of <laughs> creeping your way up to it from like cup to bed to house to, to people. Um, yeah. So since we last spoke, uh, there's another Stoic practice that I've come to cherish. Uh, so I guess I've become a little bit more of a Stoic. Uh, and that is a daily review. Uh, do, you, uh -huh. do you do one as well? Or is that is that a big one for you? Yeah, that's a big one. That, that's actually one of my major ones. Uh, for years, I've done it every day, sort of kind of religiously. Now I do it several times a week, depending on, on when I have something to uh, that I need to think about. But yes, so this is a, sometimes referred to as philosophical journalism, uh, <laughs> journaling, not journalism, uh, journaling. And um, uh, it is a very useful pr uh, practice. It, there is actually very good evidence from modern cognitive science that it works, if done properly. Yeah, there, there is an important difference here between journaling, you know, philosophical journaling, and just writing in a diary. When you write in a diary, you know, the events of the day, you may, usually people write in the first person, and they usually write with using emotional language uh, that basically, you know, it's, so they're basically reliving in a sense uh, what happened to them. That is definitely not the point. In fact, that's deleterious. The point is to re-describe events from as detached and uh, objective uh, way, a point of view as possible because you want to analyze them. You want to learn. Uh, you don't want to relive your, especially your negative emotions. You want to actually analyze what happened and ask yourself, did I do the right thing? What could I have done better? That sort of stuff. So it helps to, to use objective language, you know, detached language, and to write in the second person as if you, as if you were writing to a friend. This is the uh, suggestion that modern cognitive scientists uh, will give us. But guess what? If you read Marcus Aurelius' meditation, that's exactly what he does. He writes in the second person. And he writes in a sort of in a way that it's trying to, trying to be detached. There is a famous passage in the meditation that a lot of people misunderstand if, if they're not familiar with stories. And it's a passage where Marcus says, um, you know, that uh, the wonderful wine, uh, Falernian wine that you're drinking is just fermented grape juice. And that wonderful meal was just a dead fish. And uh, that robe, the purple robe that uh, you, you're wearing is just the result of a, a staining in, a, in, a, in the blood of a shellfish and uh, you know making love is just a friction of parts and that results in an explosion of mucus and you look at this and you say what the hell of a psychopath is this guy right it's like what is he doing here but what he's doing is he's actually rem reminding himself that a lot of things that he feels he is a little too attached to he uh, marcus is, was prone to anger we know because he tells us among other things and you know when you're angry when you get angry and you are the emperor, you can do a lot of damage. You know, heads are going to roll. So he's reminding himself that the purple, meaning the, the, the imperial purple, is not that important. It's not something to be that attached to. He was obviously also into sensual pleasures. He liked good wine and good food and having sex. 
but he reminds himself, like, you know, slow down. Th these things are okay. They're fine. They're part of, you know, a normal life. But if you become too involved into them, then your pleasures are going to own you instead of the other way around. And that's not, that's not, not a good thing. So that's the kind of thing that you want to do in, uh, in a philosophical journal. You know, talk to yourself, basically, as if you were talking to a friend and give yourself advice and say, well, did you really do this thing? You know, was, was that really right? You know, couldn't you do better the next time? That sort of stuff. Yeah, I was loving daily review so much, but finding it hard to do like pencil to paper so much that I actually built it into the WeCroak app as like an ah. extra feature. <laughs> and I had to simplify it because I wasn't doing it daily. Just like I had some guiding statements, which are easy to edit, such as, did, you, did I meditate today? Was I kind? Did I reach out to friends, have quality time with family? You know, things like that. And then it just reminds me at the end of the day, did I live up to this value? Or no, did I skip it? And then it's just a quick kind of thing. And I can still do the longer pen to paper if something's bothering me and I have like an ethical question or a moral quandary to, to thing. But it was really, really helpful to, um, to just have a daily practice of like, these are the things that I want to be doing every day. Did I do them? Yeah, exactly. I do it on uh, using an, an encrypted file on a, my word processor encrypted because I honestly don't don't want uh, to run the risk that somebody else is going to look at my self-analysis, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, of course. Uh, and, and then going to publish it as the meditations. And it's like, no, it's not good enough. And, and it's a little too personal. However, one of the advantages of doing it in an electronic format is that now I have an archive of you know years and years of this practice. And so I can actually go and search by keywords and see, you know, how many times recently or in the past I've been bothered by this particular thing as opposed to something else. Or I can look at, uh, you know, uh, let's say today's date or three years ago or five years ago or, you know, or, or longer and say, so what was I, what was I bothered by or what was I uh, concerned with, you know, two years ago or three years ago, these, these times. And it's, it's a very good sort of extended way of, of uh, carrying out self-analysis. It's not just in the moment, but it's also it gives you a kind of a longitudinal view of yourself. And the reason I've decided to make it a daily practice is I find that if I don't do it, I'll start to value myself by someone else's measuring stick. Like how much money am I making? Like how many abs do I have? How in shape I am? Or like all these sort of like um, sort of standards that are thrown at us from people who may or may not share our values. And if we're going to measure ourselves or find our self-value somehow. So if I don't, measure hold myself accountable to what i really care about i end up measuring myself by you know bullshit <laughs> that i don't care about does that make sense yes absolutely exactly it is a way to keep yourself on track and in fact the stoics basically uh suggested there are three ways to keep ourselves uh on track one is this the one that we just talked about the, the daily or at least frequent uh journaling or examination of what you did but then again they all they were also aware of the fact that we might indulge in, in rationalizing, right? That, that if, if we are the only ones looking at this thing, we might easily tell ourselves, oh, you're doing fine. It's not, not a problem. Uh, so there were two other uh, practices they, uh, or approaches that they suggested. One is what I call the uh, sage on the shoulder. Pick a role model, pick somebody that you admire uh, from an ethical perspective and imagine that that person is over looking over your shoulder, whatever, whatever you do. 
Turns out that this one also has very good empirical evidence from uh, modern cognitive science. People, if, if people are told to do that, they tend to behave better, uh, even though they know, of course, that there's nobody actually there. But the thought of, uh, you know, in my case, for instance, uh, I tend to think about my grandfather, who was one of the kindest and, and, and uh, you know, nicest person that I know. And if I think of myself, you know, when I'm doing something, it's like, well, what, what would grandpa do under these conditions? Would, would he actually think that this is a good thing for me to do? And that kind of stops me in the track and say, hold on, hold on, maybe I shouldn't do this or maybe I shouldn't say this. The third one is friendship. The Stoics thought that friendship is crucial for a good life. Uh, but they had a high standard for friendship. Uh, you know, <laughs> when I hear uh, even some of my own relatives uh, telling me that they, oh, look, I have more than a thousand friends on Facebook. I say, no, you don't. <laughs> They're not, those are not friends. Those are whatever they are, acquaintances, people that just happen, happen to be, you know, online and they, they like your profile. They're not friends. A friend is somebody you, you can truly open up to. A friend is somebody who has your own welfare at, at heart. Uh, a friend is somebody who is not afraid to uh, speak truth to you and say, maybe over a drink, like, you know, that was a shitty thing you did. Or, you know, you might want to think about this twice because it's not a... And it's not easy to find that kind of friend. Um, you know, I can... can I think I, I'm, I'm uh, very lucky because I can name maybe two or three people like that in my life. Uh, and that's a lot, actually, because that kind of friendship is also, also requires quite a bit of, uh, you know, uh, attention and maintenance. You know, you need to see these people and cultivate. Uh, it, it's obviously a reciprocal thing. So these are the three ways in which Stoics keep themselves in check. The, the uh, self-examination, so to speak, uh, daily self-examination, uh, the sage on the shoulder, and, and then the cultivation of what the, sometimes what Aristotle called uh, friendship of virtue. Yeah, it's it's not like a daily practice in the same way, but I have to say that friendship is probably my one of my favorite aspects of uh, Stoic philosophy, and also in a lot of these other philosophies. I really liked uh, the essay on Epicureanism, what they had to say about mm -hmm. sacred friendship and sort of making friendship and uh, these sort of relationships of choice based on your values and. Uh, a lifestyle and, and sort of pleasant world you want to create and really committing to those people, having them help you hold yourself to account and vice versa, uh, being there for each other. I, it's, it's really beautiful. And I think a great way to live. Exactly. Exactly. In terms of, you know, e editing this book, were there any practices or points of view that you feel like you've adopted from any of these other traditions sort of as an addendum to your sort of stoic life philosophy? Was there just anything like too good to pass up? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the short answer is no, but let me, but let me qualify. So in two ways, first of all, especially since I studied practice in stoicism, I got interested in, in similarities between different philosophies. So, you know, earlier on in my life, I was kind of more interested in the differences. Like, okay, so how is Buddhism different from Confucianism or Taoism or whatever it is? These days, I'm looking for similarities because I think that similarities uh, across philosophies or religions, especially if these philosophies or religions are divided by large you know, amounts of space or time, uh, they might indicate fundamental insights into uh, the human condition that... Uh, 
that it's worth paying attention to. So again, the example that I brought up, up at the beginning of our discussion was anger. I was surprised that uh, the Buddhists have the same kind of attitude or anger that the Stoics do, and I take that to be a sort of a cross-validation of each other's philosophies. So I, when I was going through the 15 chapters, I kind of made a note of a bunch of these, these convergences that, um, uh, that I found. The other thing is this. So uh, the problem with sort of picking things from other traditions uh, is, is that it's a delicate operation. So sometimes this is called eclecticism, right? I, I, often I get asked, you know, well, so Stoicism is fine, but why can I not be a Stoic and an Epicurean at the same time? Since Epicureans also had something interesting to say. And the short answer is that you can, but the problem is that it gets difficult. So every, every philosophy starts out probably as eclectic. Like Buddhism, for instance, was reacting to and yet at the same time incorporating many elements of Hinduism. And uh, Stoicism uh, was studied by Zeno of Sidium in the late 5th century BCE. And Z we know that Z Zeno studied with, uh, with the Cynics, which was a major, another major school at the time. He studied at Plato's Academy uh, after Plato already died there. But, but uh, he studied Platonism. He also studied with the Megarian school, which was particularly interested in logic. And so when Zeno started teaching his own philosophy, which, of course, he initially did not call uh, stoicism, uh, it was a, a eclectic mix of these things, right? Whatever made sense to him. The problem with eclecticism is that then uh, it becomes a little bit of a jumble of things that may not go together very well. That may it may cause that there may be incoherences, there may be contradictions internal to the philosophy that eventually are going to uh, emerge. That is why um, we are told by the commentator, the ancient commentator Diogenes Laertius, that Chrysippus, the third head of the store. Uh, was the one that really cleaned up the house and, and basically came in. He was a logician. He came in and said, okay, wait a minute. Certain things here work and others don't. Let's, let's clean up. Let's, let's clarify things. Let's throw away some stuff that doesn't work. Let's modify other things so that we have an internally coherent system. In fact, Diogenes tells us that if not for Chrysippus, there would be no Stoa, meaning that the, the way we understand Stoicism is really the, the, the doings of Chrysippus more than, than those of uh, Zeno. So, you can be an eclectic, but unless you are a, a good philosopher that think, thinks through, uh, things through, you're probably going to run into a, a series of contradictions and things like that. So in the case, for instance, of Stoicism and Epicureanism, yes, both philosophies have quite a bit of uh, you know, interesting things to say. And not only that, they tend to agree on a number of things. Uh, the value of friendship, for instance, both for the Stoics and for Epicureans, friendship is fundamental. Uh, this, the, the, the notion that we shouldn't be afraid of death because when we die, we're gone, so we're not going to be there. So why would you why would you be afraid of something you're not going to experience? Both the Stoics and the Epicureans agree on this. However, at the end of the day, uh, Stoics put virtue, as they put it, as they call it in modern terms, sort of pro-social behavior. Uh, at the top of the list in terms of uh, a guide to life. The, the fundamental thing for a Stoic is you need to be pro-social no matter what, even if it causes you pain. At the top of the list for, the, for an Epicurean, on the other hand, is the avoidance of pain. In fact, Epicurus de defined lack of pain, both mental and physical, as the, the highest pleasure you can possibly experience. Well, so there, most of the times there's not going to be any contradiction between these two because you can pursue pro-social behavior that is not painful. But at some point, you might have to choose. Do I you know, do, be less pro-social in order to avoid pain 
or do I take pain in order to be prosocial? And depending on which way you're going to go, then you're going to find yourself being either an Epicurean or a Stoic, but definitely not both. Well, um, Hiram Crespo, your essayist on Epicureanism, I believe he suggested his way of solving that problem is that for sort of the biggest pleasures in life, such as sacred friendship, that knowing that loneliness is so painful and such a, a thing to avoid that going an extra distance and even doing some painful things on behalf of being pro-social, as you say, or, or having friendship is easily justified as worth it in the overall calculus of creating a pleasurable life. Right. Um, but this, the Epicureans got into trouble with that kind of solution, even in ancient times. Uh, in modern times, it's even worse because essentially, so one of the things that it's interesting to keep in mind is that Epicurus actually influenced John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill was the one of the two major uh, people that, that uh, established utilitarian, uh, utilitarianism as a modern philosophy, as a modern ethical philosophy. And in fact, um, you know, Crespo is referring there to the what he calls the hedonic calculus. In other words, you have to to come up with some way of judging whether a pain is worth is worth a gain or or not. And that is the same kind of concept that utilitarians use. The problem is that, uh, as far as I can tell, in most cases, it's essentially impossible to actually do the calculus, because uh, how far down the road are you going to go with that calculus? How many? How much? time do you want to sort of to, to, to extend in time your calculus and how you actually do the, they use the word calculus but you know calculus calculations are supposed to be sort of things that you can do in a more or less precise way you can't really you can't calculate these things in a precise way it's, it becomes in, in, incredibly subjective uh, one of the problems that uh, both epicureans and utilitarians uh, are one of the issues that they are uh, they're raised against these philosophies is that in the end uh, if you take that route, yes, you might you might solve the problem, the initial problem that I mentioned uh, earlier, but you end up with something that is entirely subjective that no, no, nobody has uh, can actually tell you this is the right Epicurean way or this is not the right Epicurean way because you can make up whatever combination of calculations in terms of uh, pain versus pleasure. So it becomes impractical in my in my mind. Uh, if you go that way. You know, I have to say that the Epicurean solution there did make a lot of sense to me because it seemed to me like something that's happened to me many times in life and probably other people is you have a friend, maybe once they were a good friend or a best friend, but life goes on, people move in different directions, new careers, life philosophies, crowds, and you might experience that moment when, you know, the energy you're putting into a friendship is no longer being matched. Yes. So I kind of understand now the Epicurean solution to that is, well, if you're putting a lot of energy into someone and they don't seem to appreciate it or to uh, have an intention of matching that energy, uh, it's better to just bow to that this is a person who gets to make their own choices and begin investing your time elsewhere with someone who wants that attention and wants you know you in their life and will give back. Um, so it's a very easy way of just being like, oh, okay, um, this, it, there's a loss here, but I have to bow to what is happening now and, um, you know, just move toward the relationships that have that, uh, you know, have that present moment as part of them. 
Uh, so I guess right. given the same situation, what would be the stoic response to that situation? Oh, it would be very similar in, pra in practical terms. Uh, Epictetus says, you know, be careful who you, whose company you keep, uh, you keep because, uh, you know, th that's going to rub on you. And if, if a friend is uh, helping you again in a re reciprocal fashion to grow and become a better person, that's right. If, on the other hand, it turns into a waste of time and even worse, maybe uh, sort of uh, making you slide away from uh, ethical pro-social behavior, then, then drop the friend. And so it, it, the, the, the pragmatic answer is the same. However, we have to remember that what differentiates the two philosophies here is not uh, the, you know, the, the particular example of, you know, what are you going to do with this friend or something. It's, it's the general idea. For the Epicureans, you really need to live a life that minimizes a, uh, pain, especially mental pain. Not at all costs, because even Epicurus realized, of course, that there are some things that are worth the pain, basically, right? So if I, if I want a, a fitter uh, body, I have to go to the gym, even though it's painful, right? So the, the, the Epicureans are fine with that. That's not a problem. But the thing is, the overarching goal of your life is to minimize pain. What, that's one of the reasons, for instance, that Epicurus famously advised not to get involved in social and political issues, because they're painful. And he was right. I mean, we all know that, that that's true. Um, but that is one of the things that, that moved me from Epicureanism to Stoicism because the Stoics actually had exactly the opposite attitude. No, it is a duty of a human being to get involved politically and socially because that's what it is all about. It's about the police. Yeah, we have had an Epicurean precedent, though. Yeah, yeah, well, there are exceptions. There are Epicureans that don't behave much like <laughs> Thomas, I was really interested to hear about the connection between Epicureanism and Thomas uh, Jefferson. Uh, that was really cool. Right, yeah. that's right. Thomas Jefferson was one of, the, of, of those. Uh, and there were others, actually. Uh, Brutus, uh, the, the major co-conspirator against Julius Caesar, he was an Epicurean. So, I'm sorry, not Brutus, um, Cassius, the, his friend, was an Epicurean. He's like, yeah, but then what are you doing in a civil war? I mean, and, you know... Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are, always, there are always people that sort of profess a certain philosophy and then they do things that are actually not in agreement with that philosophy. But the, if we're talking about the precepts, if we're talking about the general ideas of the philosophy, you know, this, there's also plenty of Stoics who don't, do, don't necessarily always act in a Stoic fashion. Um, but that is on them. It's not, it's not uh, a problem with, with Stoicism. So if we're comparing different philosophies, we should compare them in terms of their fundamental ideas and, and, and you know, be, be okay uh, when we find discrepancies or things that don't work. I mean, I, again, I am interested in more in the similarities than in the differences, but after all, there is a reason why we don't have a single universal philosophy of life <laughs> because there are differences and some of us find uh, these differences uh, meaningful enough to want to embrace one or the other. I would never go on and say that, oh, you know, you're a bad person because you're an Epicurean. I think in Epicureanism, in fact, all 15 of the philosophies that we put into the, this book, I think, can be practiced by decent human being and, beings and, and lead, lead, uh, to live a life worth living uh, and, a, generally speaking, a pro-social life. So they're all positive philosophies. That's why, as I said earlier, we don't have objectivism on the list. Uh, or you know, or, or other uh, similar similar philosophies. They they're all you know whether you you are a Confucian or an Epicurean or a Christian, uh, you certainly have many tools at, at your disposal within your philosophy uh, to live a life worth living. And so the choice then become comes down to 
more personal preferences or situational issues and so on. And I really liked how the book kind of grouped the different life philosophies sort of in sort of ones that were in conversation with each other when they were created so that you could really see how these sort of uh, differences took shape in conversations. And, you know, these ideas of, yes, there's a lot of similarities, but when push comes to shove, where are you acting from? What's yes, most important to you? Exactly. And that is important because it's a value. It's like, what, uh, where are you acting from? What is your, you know, even if you get to the same place, what matters to you? Is it an important question to ask? That's right. One of the interesting things about most of these philosophies is that uh, they actually tend to be concerned with, at least in part, and sometimes in full, with the agent's intentions and not, not just with the outcomes, right? Uh, and the reason for that is because, let's say for the Stoics, for instance, or in fact, even for Aristotelians, uh, what makes an act, an act virtuous is not the consequences, the outcome of that act, but the intentions of the agent. Let's say, for instance, that... Um, you know, I volunteered to the soup kitchen around the corner. Is that a good thing or not? A utilitarian would say, yeah, it is, period, because it helps other people. But uh, a stoic or an utilitarian would say, well, why are you doing that exactly? If you're doing it because you're actually, at least in part, generally concerned about other people, you want to be helpful, then yes, it's a virtuous action. But if you're doing it because you need an extra line on your, re on your resume to look good for your next job application, then the action is not, is not virtuous, even though the results might be positive. They're accidentally positive. They're not the result of virtuous action. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point in terms of how you feel about yourself at the end of the day in your daily review. Are you doing it for your resume or because you have a loving kindness toward other people? Uh, so the book we've been talking about today, uh, you co-edited with uh, Sky C. Cleary and Daniel A. Kaufman. Let's give them credit as well. Uh, how to Live a Good Life, uh, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. But you've actually written a lot of books. Do you want to just, but people are interested in what you're saying or about your path of stoicism. Are there any other books that you recommend that they take a look at or other places that uh, our listeners can follow you? Sure. Uh, the major place to follow me is my blog, which is figsinwinter.blog. And we talked about figs in winter, so, by the, so you know why it's called that. Uh, or I'm on Twitter at mpilucci, M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. In terms of books, uh, what depends on what people are interested in. If, if they're looking for a general introduction to Stoicism uh, with some uh, exercises to actually begin to practice, then how to be a Stoic, uh, I think, is the way to go. But if you're interested in really the practice, delving into the practice immediately and, and you want a, a number of options in terms of type of exercises and stuff like that, then I co-wrote a book with my friend Greg Lopez entitled A Handbook for New Stoics. And that would be a good way to, to get started. Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us again on the We Croak podcast. Uh, it's an honor to have you. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Massimo Pigalucci, for joining us as our very first returning guest here on the We Croak podcast. We anticipate being back with more new episodes in a couple of weeks. So until then, we'll see you next time.